Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We begin today with Alex Salmon, staff writer at the American Prospect, whose latest article, The Vanishing Case for Liberal Inaction, makes the case that when Democrats in Congress have power, they act as placeholders until handing it back, acting as best defensively, ostensibly fearing the future, which Alex maintains is the present. In other words, that their fear of bold action to implement their program is actually the worst case scenario now, not in 2022, 2024, or beyond. The Republicans, on the other hand, push their strategic goals using whatever tactical means available. We get Alex's take. We then turn to Brazil, teetering on another constitutional crisis as the increasingly unpopular President Jair Bolsonaro is mobilizing his base and laying the groundwork for a coup. Pedro Paulo Zaluz Bastos is back with us to unpack the complex Brazilian political scene. Bolsonaro's botched handling of the pandemic and is actively using the Trump playbook to undermine confidence in elections, the media, the judiciary, and all democratic institutions. We'll get Pedro Paulo's astute understanding of this process still underway in Brazil. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and very pleased to have Alex Salmon with us for the very first time. Alex is a staff writer at the American Prospect, and he was also a former writer at the New Republic, and his work has been published in a lot of different places, including Wired, Mother Jones, Pacific Standard, N Plus One, all your favorite go-to places. And he has a new piece. It's actually almost a week old now, not quite at the American Prospect, which you can find online, which is called The Vanishing Case for Liberal Inaction. And he says in it that the Democrats who believe we should keep the filibuster think the current situation is the best they can do, and that offensively, essentially, they're at their limit, and they need to keep the filibuster to prevent things from getting any worse. At least that's my interpretation of what he's saying, and it's a defensive stance against the Republicans that the Democrats are showing here. And his article, as I just mentioned, The Vanishing Case for Liberal Inaction, makes the case that when Democrats in Congress have power, they act as placeholders until handing it back. And the Republicans, on the other hand, push their strategic goals using whatever tactical means available. So, Alex, with all of that, welcome to Jacobin Radio. And maybe you could just set out in the very beginning for the listeners what you call that vanishing case or put more positively, the overwhelming case for liberal action. This column was, I think, appeared on the 1st of September 2021 for people who want to go look for it. And it says essentially that you think the Democratic Party is at its very strongest point today and will only get weaker. So with all of that, let's hear you lay out your argument. Yeah, sure. I think that's a, a great summary and a really good starting point. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that something that you hear from Democrats kind of all over the ideological spectrum, even within the party, is that they can't get rid of the filibuster because think of what would happen when Republicans return to power and how they'll use that to nefarious and diabolical ends. And the risk is just too high. And the case that I kind of set out to make here is that the worst case scenario, which is basically the, the bedrock on which this case is built, that you know, if we get rid of this last check on Republican power, God knows what they'll do. It's just not worth the risk. 
the, the worst case scenario one could trot out here looks a lot like the current scenario. And so if you understand that to be the case, that the infringement on voting rights, the packed courts, the rulings on abortion, obviously all very topical right now, the case that you would see kind of Democratic strategists make is that, well, what if Republicans come back, get a 50 vote majority in the Senate, and then they outlaw abortion? Is that that far off from where we're, we're currently standing? I mean, the second largest state in the United States has functionally outlawed the majority of abortions. And so you can see this on a case-by-case basis with every major sort of touchstone thing. Democrats say, well, we'd like to do something. We can't do it because of the filibuster, which is sacrosanct because Republicans are out of control. And once we repeal this limitation, there's no stopping them. And, and I think if we look closely at that, I think we would say there was no stopping them. And they've already they've already done everything they set out to do. And, and the idea that we have to guard against some outcome like this is, isn't really borne out in reality. Okay. So I want to unpack everything you just said, <laughs> Alex Salmon. You, so in other words, you say to bring out the Democrats' strategic pessimism or conservatism, maybe those are the same thing here. Um, you put the focus on the filibuster, rightly so, and say that the Democrats are being self-defeating in refusing to abolish it, which should be the ABC and bottom line, one would think, for any Democratic politics. Maybe you could just explain in a little bit more detail why you think this should be the indispensable bottom line for their strategy to implement the program that, in other words, in order to do that, they have to abolish the filibuster. Yeah. I mean, one would think that the point of winning power is to use it, right? I mean, I think that that's an assumption that is maybe lost on a lot of our democratic politicians, but I think generally we would broadly concede that that is the case. You win in order to enact your agenda. I think democratic voters feel that way. I'm sure Republican voters feel that way. And I think also Republican politicians feel that way. And so right now you have this sort of self-defeating preemptive white flag waving where Democrats say like, well, we'd like to implement many of these agenda items that we ran on and that you Americans voted for, but we can't because there's this 60 vote threshold and we we would like to get rid of it, can't get rid of it. And that's not really a problem that Republican politicians have when they get power, then they convert it into action, into legislation. And it's this sort of tilted field where Democrats now have this small window in which they have this incredibly narrow majority that they won, and they have a chance to enact policy changes that they've said that they believe in, that Democratic voters, voters broadly supported, obviously, to deliver that majority. And now all of a sudden, you can't do it. And the sort of defensive case here just ultimately doesn't make any sense. It's like, if you have power, you need to use it. The other side has no issue with that. And you can't just sit around and wait to hand the ball back and let Republicans do what they set out to do, which they have no qualms about doing. Right. But there's even more that you imply in your argument in talking about this conservatism of the Democratic Party in power and that it's strategic. And you say it's also unwarranted because even if the Republicans had control of all three branches, what it could do and would do is not that threatening. In other words, and this is this case you've already said, and I'm going to reiterate it, is that the worst case is not so much of a threat to warrant the conservatism of the Democratic Party. So before we go deeper into that, maybe you could spell it out a little bit for the listeners. So in 2017, when the Republicans had control of all the branches of the government, you could say that all they really were able to accomplish was tax cuts that grossly favored the rich and corporations, but they were unable, as we well know, to take down Obamacare, which had been literally the most important thing they said they wanted to do. And then on the other hand, now, 
And you've already highlighted some of this, Alex. Republicans are ready without the control of the presidency or the Congress to push through their program on a state by state basis. And the trial run, as you also said, is Texas. And there we get to see what they're pushing through on Roe v. Wade. We also see it in what they're pushing through on suppressing voting rights. So I guess the question from there is, what do you think about this conservative political perspective in light of what I've just said, that the Republicans don't need them? Right. I mean, there's this interesting mode of thinking about this where Democrats conceive of Republicans as being this sort of legislative juggernaut that can't be stopped. And the reality is is that the Republican program is incredibly unpopular. And so they're not some sort of juggernaut that if we, you know, reduce them to a 50 vote threshold to pass their agenda, they would all of a sudden reach this new sort of actualized and, and realized force that they even haven't tapped into yet. It's they had majorities, as you said, in in both chambers of Congress, and they had a presidency in 2017, and they managed only to pass maybe the only truly unpopular tax cut that's been passed. I mean, it's truly a feat to do something like that in the United States. And they passed that. They only needed 50 votes to repeal Obamacare. They couldn't do it. And any of those other agenda items like like Roe v. Wade, like these abortion concerns, women's rights issues, voting rights stuff, they couldn't pass it. They couldn't even find 50 votes to do it. So it's, it's not really an abstract question. It's something we just lived through. And the one thing they were able to achieve, even being only held to a 50 vote standard, was that tax cut. And they promptly got absolutely washed out in the midterm election. So it's, it's an incredibly unpopular agenda. Uh, we already know that. And no matter what the threshold is, if it's 50 or 60 votes, it's still very hard to pass things that people hate. You know, it, we don't have to have a long memory to, to see that. And, you know, the fact that most of the Republican agenda can be enacted via 50 votes because of judicial appointments and tax cuts are something that can be done under reconciliation. We already know what that looks like when the threshold is reduced to 50 votes. And it's not the juggernaut that Democratic politicians would like you to believe. So let's go then into what we think is really behind the Democrats in action on this. And that is their sort of conservative approach to almost all of the key tactics that they would have at their disposal. And so I want to ask you what you think is behind that cautious and conservative strategic perspective. And, you know, it's one thing to lay all the blame on, say, Manchin or Cinema, because they're not going to go for the filibuster. They're not going to go for anything. And it's true. There are definitely very conservative elements within the Democratic Party pushing these things. But harking back to another time, there would be ways to get around that. So I want to hear your views on what you think is behind it. And I also want to ask you within that, I think you retweeted one of Senator Clyburn's tweets recently, in which he said that the Democratic $3.5 trillion infrastructure program is a ceiling and not a floor. And that there was probably another $2 trillion that was negotiable, which is basically taking it even lower than what the Republicans said. So given all of that, let me hear what you think is behind the unwillingness, let's say, to really do some arm twisting and get their program through now. Yeah, I think a lot of it, I mean, there are a lot of reasons. I think there are ideological reasons. There's the fact that obviously corporate money plays a big role in this and lobbying and all these things have an, a major impact, I think. You know, as we see the lobbying blitz that's descended on Washington right now, you know, no better example of how insidious and how powerful that is. So, you know, all those things play a role, I think, not to discount any of them. For me, I think part of what helps make sense of it is actually the age of leadership of the Democratic Party. And so many of the politicians who are in these positions of power, the three ranking Democrats in the House, 
Um, Joe Biden was elected to the Senate in 1973, I think, for the first time. You have Democrats who came into the chamber or came into the national politics at a time when the Republican Party was, in fact, quite a juggernaut, was basically an uncontested political force. And Democrats were very weak and the Republican program was very popular. And so those Democrats, I think, rule with that lesson kind of baked into their thinking that they're going to do something like raise taxes or enact a tax and spend program. They basically have to trick the American public into doing it because the American public at its core is fundamentally conservative and loves the Republican program. And they catch any whiff of some sort of democratic policy that they're going to turn on these politicians immediately. It's just not the reality of the moment that we live in. And and it may have been true in the Reagan years, but it isn't now 40 years later, isn't true now. And it's not the, the makeup of the electorate. And to have octogenarians at all these top levels of the party and, and Pelosi and Clyburn and Steny Hoyer. And, you know, I don't even think Pelosi is, is the worst defender here, but I think Clyburn is, in fact, a good person to, to name check because he, he is. Those are the lessons that they have taken to heart and can't disabuse themselves of somehow. And I think that really plays into the notion of why Democrats are so allergic to wielding power, why they don't feel comfortable, you know, enacting an agenda and the kind of fearful defensive crouch that they legislate from. There's a lot there, Alex, because it's true that you have the older, more conservative Democrats in power. But Biden, on the other hand, now as president, has come out with literally the most radical program the Democrats have ever put forward, at least since the 60s and maybe the 30s. And yet this proposal, and I'd like to hear where you think Biden is on his own proposal, because in order to fight for it, he has to say, you know, we can't have the filibuster. And then given the other side of that, this question of the donors and money, because clearly this is the most important anti-democratic feature of our system, the role of money in it. But imagine that you had Democrats in power with balls, let's say, who would say, we want to do this, but we'll lose our funding. The donors are pushing for us to do this. And who are our donors? Here they are, you know, or do something like that. Call their bluff, you know, because the American people don't support the donors. You know, And of course, that might be pie in the sky, but it just seems like if you really wanted to fight for something, there's lots of ways to do it. And you see, you know, Bernie and you see AOC and others trying to do that, but you don't see it from the leadership. And instead, you see this nothing but halt, halt, halt. We can't go that far. So maybe I, you could just talk a little bit more about that and within that, where you see the infrastructure proposal going, including Biden's own fight for it. Right. Well, I think that you make a great point that the package that Biden put together is actually a very impressive package. I mean, not something going into this election cycle a year ago that I would have thought that President Joe Biden would ever put together. You you know, have to give credit where credit is due. This is a visionary and, and radical piece of legislation compared to what Democrats have done for decades and decades and compared to what Joe Biden's record has been for decades and decades. So that's something that is worth acknowledging definitely from the outset. In terms of where Biden is at on this package and how he intends to fight for it, I think that's a really good question that we haven't seen yet. And the interesting thing is that we talk about the intransigence of of Joe Manchin, right? He can't be reached. He's, you know, this maverick Democratic representative of a Republican state and all sins are forgiven. If that's your political profile, you can do whatever you want. The funny thing is, is that we know that Joe Biden could move Joe Manchin if he wanted to. And the one time this came out was earlier this year, they sent... Kamala Harris to West Virginia to do a little stump speech and do some public outreach. 
And Joe Manchin to that point was, I'm a no on this. I'm a no on that. I'm not so sure about these cabinet appointments. And they sent Kamala Harris, who's you know not the world's most impressive public speaker, to West Virginia. And overnight, Joe Manchin freaked out. And all of a sudden, it was like, okay, a couple of things here and there I'm, I'm game for. You know, most of these cabinet appointments got through. And so they know where his weak spot is, right? You can have progressives call him a, all, any order of names in D.C. all day long. He doesn't care about that. But if you send the vice president or the president himself to West Virginia, then the temperature cranks up a little bit. And and I think that if they're really serious about this program, and and I will see if it comes to that, they have the ability to apply pressure and the pressure works. And the funny thing is, is that Joe Manchin reacted so strongly to the vice president being in West Virginia that they pulled her back right away and basically apologized for having done it. It was almost too effective. So we know what they can do. We know if Joe Biden goes to Arizona Kirsten Cinema's song and dance is not going to last. It's not going to be the sort of thing that, that can endure that. And, you know, all the corporate money in the world can only get you so far. And, and I think that if it comes down to that, we know that they have the weapons in their arsenal to get this stuff through at least a serious percentage of it. And if they have to do it. We'll see if they have to do it. I love what you just said, because you said, <laughs> Alex, that Kamala Harris was almost too effective. So they had to pull her back. And that just speaks mountains, right? I mean, we know that let's say before, like during the Obama presidency, um, you could say that the Republicans feared their base and the Democrats hated theirs and that forever they've hated, you know, how far left their base is because that's not where they are. The Democratic Leadership Council, the Democratic National (laughs) Establishments, let's say. But we're living in an extraordinary world. And it's to Biden's credit, as you said, and I'll repeat, you know, that he's recognized that climate change is an existential threat. The pandemic is an existential threat and they have to be fought and they have to be fought in order to support the economy and the livelihoods and everything else. And so you saw this good response, like one of those moments when the Democrats could actually propose something bold and get it through. And now they're falling back. And so it's I'm not asking you for a crystal ball, but I want to see if you have any other thoughts about why they stake themselves on this package and yet they don't fight for it. Yeah, it's a really good question. It's an interesting the Democratic Party, I think, is a little unsettled in, in what it stands for and what its values are. And obviously, there's this is supposed to be a transition period, right? Like Joe Biden, when he ran initially, said he was only going to go for one term and he is the oldest president we've ever had. And so you have kind of these warring sensibilities that I think are kind of unsettled still, which is why you have an incredibly ambitious social welfare program. And then you have also a total uncertainty about whether or not it's worth fighting to implement it. Or you kind of have, even now you're talking about like a limited pot of money is what there is the new catchphrase that, that's floating around is it's a limited pot of money. We can't do it all. And it's like, well, there actually are a lot of people in the White House who do, do think you can do it all and for good reason. And so and in the Fed, too. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. And, and so, yeah, these contradictions are kind of playing out in real time. And I and I think it's hard to know who ultimately is going to win out a. The one thing that I'll say is even Jim Clyburn, who basically goes on cable news effectively at this point to sabotage Democratic policy priorities. Uh, He did it with police reform not that long ago, which is functionally dead in the water in any meaningful way now. And so to see him back on the cable news circuit saying that the number is doesn't matter that much. It's not going to be that big. Like, let's take it down and see how far we can get it. You know, he said that he also said this is internally, at least has been quoted as saying that this is our last chance to enact policy for 40 years. Like this might be it. This might be all we have. So you have, 
you know, these sort of contradictions that are within the party, within the leadership, within the principles. And, and I think there's some of that. And then there's some of the other stuff. It is an interesting process to see play out. And again, it's, it's funny to think of that line of thinking. We have one shot to pass this stuff for 40 years. And then also this line of thinking that we kind of started out with in this conversation, which is that like, we can't do anything because Republicans might just repeal it later. So there's no point in even trying. And it's like, those two things fundamentally cannot be reconciled. And yet you have even one person like Jim Clyburn saying both of them at the same time shows you that here we are at a very interesting political moment. And the title of your article, The Vanishing Case for Liberal Inaction, you've just sort of made it that there is no case for liberal inaction. And so you've also talked about the contradictions between what needs to be done literally because of the moment that we're living in, what they have proposed, which is quite good, and then key members of the party at the top actively sabotaging it. And they're doing so at the behest of donors and interests and also, as you say, fear. And then you say this fear is unwarranted. So I think we should just end a little bit on that fear. So what is it that they're really frightened of? Yeah, I think they're they're Or is it their politics? I, I, you know, I think they're afraid of the money getting turned off, right? I think that 2020 was a great cycle for Democrats in terms of how much money they raised, the way they raised it. I mean, you saw small dollar donors were a big part of this, but also dark money was a huge part of it. You know, you kind of saw an embrace of, of the sort of all of the above funding mechanism and the Chamber of Commerce has started to turn on the Republican Party, like these sorts of things you would never expect in a million years. And if you're a fundraising oriented Democrat, which is most of what the job is, right, then that's something that, that looms large in your head that, you know, the Chamber of Commerce is right now paying for some of your stuff and they could turn on you at any moment and go back to the other side. And that's, I think, is part of the concern. I think that that factors in quite a bit. Obviously, the threat of losing power, losing the majority, I think is somewhat of a concern, but everyone's so old that, I mean, the funny thing is, in a weird way, that's that's actually an asset. And so like Nancy Pelosi deciding to go big on this and holding kind of the line on the 3.5 trillion and things like drug pricing reform that the White House doesn't really care about or hadn't really cared about, at least until fairly recently, like she knows this is her last chance to kind of shore up a legacy and so she's not going to have to pay the price of losing re-election because she's on her way out the door. And so these things, you know, they cut both ways oftentimes. But I think that to kind of put a finer point on it, the idea that like, you know, I keep using the, the abortion rights as a framework here, but I think it's quite useful. The idea that Democrats can't get rid of the filibuster to enshrine Roe v. Wade into law, which they could do. They could say, get rid of the filibuster, pass Roe v. Wade into law, use those majorities because in 2022, Republicans could win the House, and then in 2024, they could win the presidency, and then they could team up to make abortion illegal because they only need 50 votes. And, and then if that happens, right, that still means that you have four more years of protection for women that really, in, in most places in the country, don't have. And they could push voting rights and they could actually even get rid of Citizens United or at least try. You right. know, so I think you've laid out all of those arguments really well, Alex. And we've kind of run out of time. I'd love to go into them more, but I'm going to be reading everything you write in the American Prospect and invite you back. But I want to thank you so much for joining us on Jacobin Radio. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And for the listeners, Alex Salmon is staff writer at the American Prospect. Go there and find his piece, The Vanishing Case for Liberal Inaction. I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. Mm 
This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. I'm so pleased to have Pedro Paulo Zaluz Bastos back with us. He's a professor of political economy at Campinas University or Unicamp, and that's just outside Sao Paulo. And he is joining us from there today. And Pedro Paulo has been our go-to person to understand what I can only say is the most bizarrely complicated politics in Brazil. And now we're going to ask Pedro Paulo to unpack the ongoing constitutional crisis and the attempts by the increasingly unpopular President Jair Bolsonaro to set the stage for a coup using the Trump playbook by undermining confidence in elections, democratic institutions and the media. And even on September 7th, trying to provoke a kind of January 6th insurrection, which we will talk about. But in earlier broadcasts, Pedro Paulo has helped us to understand how the anti-corruption campaign, which was called the Car Wash Investigation, derailed the PT and Lula and put him in jail and effectively cleared the way for Bolsonaro to win the election. Pedro Paulo outlined at the time Bolsonaro's appeal among the poor and the ever-growing evangelical sector. But despite his extreme authoritarian and proto-fascist politics. And today we're going to pick up from there to get Pedro Paulo's analysis of the state of Brazilian democracy. And I have to just say that this is could also be, you know, an interview about what's happening in the United States, but all the particulars will be about Brazil. Pedro Paulo's most recent article and presentation is called Live and Let Die, Bolsonaro and the Fascist Escalation in Brazil. So, Pedro Paulo, welcome back to Jacobin Radio. Thank you for having me, Susie. And I really want to say that the title, Live and Let Die, is terrific, and it encapsulates the sort of seemingly crazy politics, because it could also be the leitmotif for Trump, and I should say for Trump's party that continues and is in some ways more extreme, And I also say crazy because it shrinks the base of supporters. They're the ones who are dying. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. And it goes directly to Bolsonaro's pandemic politics, which I know we're going to talk about somewhat and the fascist escalation. And it brings us right to what happened on September 7th that caught international attention as Bolsonaro amassed thousands in protests around the country. So before we get into the present conjuncture, maybe you should just do a really quick roundup of what happened on September 7th and why you chose that title, and then we'll go straight to the conjuncture. Okay, Susie. Well, the title is mostly because uh, Bolsonaro don't play COVID-19 as a little flu, and that would kill few people and would pass out quickly, pretty much as Trump. And even when this assumption was refuted, he continued to prioritize economy over health, saying that people have to live and let die, actually. And he opposed uh, social distancing and not actually strict lockdowns weren't enacted in Brazil, actually. It's just moderate social distance measures. And he claimed that the remedy was much worse than the disease. He said that Brazil would only be freed from the pandemic when something like 70% of the population got COVID. And so he defended pretty much herd immunity before the vaccines. And later on, he railed against masks. He doesn't use masks at all. And he, of course, has backed miracle cures much more than than Trump did. 
that chloroquine and God knows what hydrochloric. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, ivermectin yeah. as well, probably. That's the horse medication yeah, people are using. And basically, because he wanted people to encourage people to keep on moving and working carelessly, right? And most of his bases of support, of course, hid him and died in droves, in droves. He dismissed two health ministers that resisted the replacement of these common sense measures like masks for the miracle cures that he was peddling. And he came to nominate a general, a four-star general with no experience whatsoever in public health. And this guy failed to provide uh, coordination, even health material, oxygen, ventilators, ICU beds, vaccines, and systems for testing, tracking, and tracing. Wow. Right? And later, he would say that vaccines were too risky, that he wouldn't be vaccinated, and he hadn't yet got any shot at all, at least as far as, as we know. And he, he shunned many Pfizer proposals that arrived since June 2020, because Brazil was a place where Pfizer used to have tests of its vaccines. So we decided that Brazil could be a, a case of success of vaccination because, we, you, you know, you have a public health system in Brazil, universal public health system in Brazil. And he shunned this, but he incited followers to, to march against governors and mayors that limited movement, that declare or mandate social distancing measures. And actually, he participated himself in rallies. As if Trump not only set people to go to rally against Gretchen Whitman, the governor of Michigan, but he actually go there also with, with these crazy people to protest against her, right? And we should say as well, the death rate in Brazil is, I think, second only to the U.S., about the same as India, maybe? Is that right? Yes, uh, we know that there is a, a huge underestimation of deaths in India. And yeah. in Brazil, there is also, but maybe not as high. Yeah. And so we have official numbers now is 585,000 people. And there's so 656,000 here, I think. So it's catching yeah. up. And ours catching is probably up. underestimated as well. Yes, yes, catching up. And when it comes, of course, deaths per 100,000 inhabitants, Brazil is the fifth, more or less, fifth or fourth, right? But of course, Brazil is a, it's a huge country. That shouldn't happen in Brazil because we have, as, a, as I mentioned, a, a universal public health system. No. So it's, it was a tragedy, a huge tragedy. And, and Bolsonaro actually, even though he conducted this lousy health policy, he was able for some time to retain popularity because he claimed the fatherhood of uh, emergency ECPAND, a monetary handout that was proposed and supported by the left parties in the Congress, uh, more or less at 300 US dollars in purchasing power parity that was sent to poorer Brazilians to help them weather the economic fallout of the pandemic and respect the state and municipal social distancing policies. We have a lot to talk about, Pedro Paulo, and I want right. to go to what happened on September 7th okay. to sort of lay the groundwork, because this got attention in The Washington Post and The Guardian everywhere, that this was the kind of first stage of a coup. And 
Bolsonaro has been pretty open about this. You know, he said, I think that he only saw three futures for himself, imprisonment, death or victory, and and has repeatedly, you know, talked about this constitutional rupture. But so maybe you can talk first about what happened on September 7th, and then that will take us right to this current conjuncture and what this is really going on about. I should just say, Pedro Paolo, that at least reported here that 60 percent of the population is upset with his handling of the pandemic and of his rule. Yeah, even more, maybe 70 percent. Mm. But he's got a huge base of support still of more or less like 20 percent of the population. And he's been basically rallying against the Brazilian electronic voting system, saying that it is open, vulnerable to fraud, and that the Supreme Court would like to have Lula elected. Imagine, because the Supreme Court, as you know, decided to get Lula imprisoned in order to have Bolsonaro elected, actually, right? Mm -hmm. And you just have to Actually, it came to understand that Sergio Moro, who is a justice that uh, led the Lava Jato or car wash operation against PT, was, of course, uh, not very partial, a very partial justice. And I think you know that intercept, intercept some communication between Sergio Moro and the prosecutors. And so the Supreme Court have to say that uh, Lula was cleared because he was subject of uh, judicial persecution. But because of that, Bolsonaro says that actually the Supreme Court is already plotting for Lula to be elected. And he's sowing doubt on the reliability of the Brazilian very well-regarded electronic voting system and saying that it's open to fraud and that Supreme Court will actually, because the Supreme Court has decides about the standards that are universal in Brazil. It's not like in the U.S. that each district decides on how you have to have your election, right? And they say that Bolsonaro says that the Supreme Court is rigging the machines in order to to have Lula having more than 50% of the votes in the first round. And actually, he had already said when he was elected, that he should have been elected in the first round, not in the runoff. And he, he just wasn't elected because also because of the fraud of the Supreme Court in 2018. And Maybe you could just just for our listeners, Pedro Paolo, because this is something that, you know, we heard Trump doing. He said that there were millions of illegal votes by illegal aliens or, you know, this was in 2016. And then in 2020, he said it was outright fraud and that they've had many, many investigations. I don't want to talk about the United States, but as you stated, Brazil has a national election policy and the ballots are the same everywhere and they're counted electronically. So how when Bolsonaro says this, you say sowing distrust in the system, but do people buy that? And how does the court react? I think most of the people don't buy that, but his social bases do buy that, or at least they pretend that they are buying that, right? And the courts have actually uh, many layers of security, and actually all parties are capable of fiscalizing the, the election and the tally. And actually, it's not only a digital tally. People vote actually in digital booths. But he's, he's been sowing these doubts also 
when it comes to, he says that the Brazilian state is, is completely controlled by communists and the communists are inside also the Supreme Court. And he has been funding with public money these fake news, posts of social media setups, funding, basically funding stream right sites and YouTube channels with public money. It's as if, uh, Susie, Trump hadn't limited himself to exhort the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by, but would help them to organize their sites and social media setups with public money. Then would participate in their rallies against governors concerned with public health measures or against the Supreme Court because of supposed election fraud. And later would back then when they cried for dictatorship reportedly to protect individual rights. So it's even worse. I mean, Bolsonaro, of course, plays by Trump's playbook, but it's even worse. It's even worse. And you, this quote that you have about institutional rupture, and you've just laid out, Pedro Paolo, the groundwork that Bolsonaro is preparing by sowing distrust in all of the institutions, not just voting, but also the media, the fake news, and then in the Supreme Court as well. And Maybe we could just talk a little bit more about how successful that is, given, as you said, that people are very unhappy with his reign in power. Yes, people are very unhappy because, of course, the number of deaths, also because Brazil has the worst of both worlds. Actually, it's impossible to prioritize economy over health because, of course, people will back down from buying and participating in in-person services because of the pandemic. So it has, the pandemic has, of course, a huge negative impact on the economy. And Brazil has now a record unemployment level also. And the Supreme Court and even Justice Moro realized that Bolsonaro was protecting some corrupt deals by his sons. Basically, Sergio Moro, as you know, decided to abandon the career as a justice. Yeah, he and, was the Supreme Court justice that was behind, essentially, the car wash investigation. Yeah, but he was not a Supreme Court justice. He was oh. in the, the lower rank okay. of the, the judicial system. But even though he, he was a justice of a small town, he claimed that he would have jurisdiction over all the country. And then he Bolsonaro nominated him as Minister of Justice. And he gave freedom for the federal police to investigate dealings of Bolsonaro's sons. And that's why Bolsonaro ended up breaking up with him. So <laughs> Bolsonaro also has a problem with corruption. And all his sheriff aura has been pretty much tarnished because of these corrupt deals, even with vaccine procurements. And the Supreme Court basically decide to start some investigative process because the Supreme Court can do it here in Brazil, both to investigate public funding for pro-dictatorship rallies and organizations, and public funding also for the fascist fake news, and the, the process over the Bolsonaro interference on the federal police investigation over his sons was actually the only process that was requested by the Attorney General, which is even more politicized than William Barr, but couldn't stand the pressure from society to free the federal police to conduct this investigation. And the Supreme Court clearly realized that Bolsonaro was funneling public money to, of course, funding 
pro-dictatorship rallies like we had in September 70. Of course, in September 70, it was much more private money because of the investigation over this funding of public money. And the Supreme Court also is going after the fascist fake news media or social media. Differently from the U.S., we don't have a very lax or relaxed law regarding freedom of speech. We're much more like Germany in the Mm. sense that you cannot be for dictatorship or make fascist or racist propaganda as you like. Yeah, so what does this mean for Bolsonaro? Because he clearly does all of those things and has now come out against the Supreme Court, as you said, for all kinds of reasons. And then on top of that, like even though the press around the world took notice of this attempted coup or laying the groundwork for the coup, it doesn't seem that it had its intended effect. And I wanted to ask, like, do you think September 7th backfired for him? And is he still able, Bolsonaro, to put forward this insurrectionist agenda? I don't know if it backfired. I think it was the opening salvo of the coup, of the fascist escalation, of course, clearly. And he was capable of amassing huge crowds of very passionate supporters. But he couldn't, at least some far-right militants were actually agitating for a putsch in that day. They promised the Supreme Court that itself investigated communication over social media, even Getter, for instance. Because Mm. I I don't know if you know that uh, Jason Miller was here this week because of the CPAC that was Conservative Political Action Committee. Right, they had their CPAC Brazil, which I don't know. And both uh, Bannon and Jason Miller were here. And uh, well, Jason Miller. uh, He was detained, I think. Yeah. Go ahead, explain it. But federal police uh, discovered that there were many communications planning People were planning to storm the Supreme Court, the House and the Senate buildings during the demonstration September 7th in Brasilia. And actually, they breached the barriers the night before the demonstration, but they were controlled by the military police after the Supreme Court Chief Justice threatened to call the army. Right. Well, let me ask you about that, because, you know, this is very bold action on Bolsonaro's part. And now you've laid out that Steve Bannon and others have been active in fostering this. But Bolsonaro comes from the military. He's got a long history of saying that there should be a military coup. And then he won, you know, in a what we could say is a legitimate election after eliminating his opponent from from running. That would have been Lula. But now, does he still, given his unconstitutional actions, have the support of the military? Where do they stand? Well, actually, Bolsonaro was expelled from the army in the 1980s because he was plotting some terrorist action in order to have raises for the lower ranks of the officials. And for a long time, he wasn't even allowed to get inside military institutions, installations in Brazil. And because of the Brazilian crisis in 2014, the military decided to intervene politically. They have this experience in MINUSTA actions in Haiti for like 15 years. And they decided that as they got this, they found successful experience in Haiti, they could replicate it in Brazil. And Bolsonaro was kind of his man to get them to have a better space, public space, 
for instance, Bolsonaro has nominated more or less 3,500 military office uh, for civil office in Brazil. And by now, most of his ministers are from military origin. And of course, if he had the support of the army for a coup, he would have already enacted self-coup, I think. But we, we never know, of course. We never know if he was actually plotting to spark chaos on September 7th, so to make a call for the military to restore order. And we don't know if in that case, the military leaders would resist a fascist coup led, for instance, by the military police that is much more fanatical when it comes to politics, right-wing politics, and the lower ranks of the military that are huge base of support of Bolsonaro also in alliance with civil militias. And in this demonstration, Bolsonaro vowed never to accept what he deems as inconstitutional decisions of the Supreme Court. The thing that the putsch didn't happen, the military apparently didn't support him, and the following day, the Supreme Court answered very firmly, implying the obvious, that Bolsonaro's threat was an impeachable offense, which the, the House and Senate should tackle. Right. So what's going to happen? This is really important. I, I just want to stress what you just said, Pedro Paulo, that the Supreme Court has now said that Bolsonaro's actions were unconstitutional and impeachable. And this is obviously the reason that everyone says Brazil is now in a constitutional crisis. Right. So. Right. Actually, Bolsonaro created the constitutional crisis by saying that he would not respect any Supreme Court orders that he deemed constitutional. Of course, the constitutional court, right? And so he, of course, he was playing as a dictator, right? And actually, the House, the president of the House of Representatives, is a Bolsonaro ally, but he, I think, wouldn't prefer to have a military coup because, of course, the uh, civil politicians would lose a lot of power to the military, and the military chiefs clearly, I think, don't back the self-coup, at least as of now. The Supreme Court Chief Justice was impressed by Bolsonaro's threat and called his bluff and would probably make judicial matters harder still for Bolsonaro. And the other thing is that Bolsonaro couldn't get control of this fascist vanguard that mm-hmm. were composed by truckers. And so the truckers understood that a coup was going on in Brasilia because they have, of course, a lot of fake news saying that Bolsonaro had already declared a state of emergency in Brasilia. And so they decided to start a lockout on September 8th, in the very, very early hours of September 8th, just after the demonstrations, mounting barriers across Brazilian highways and roads to block them. And they were loosely, very loosely led by truckers that encamped in the main Brazilian avenue, insisting on meeting with the head of the Senate to force him to impeach Justice Alexandre Moraes, who is public enemy number one for them. And right? do you think that's going to happen? Is that something? Or, I mean, could you say a little bit more? Because I really want for our listeners here to get some sense of, I guess, the lineup politically of the various forces in Brazil with regard to Bolsonaro. So you and I talked a lot on this show about Temer when he was in power and impeached Dilma and then, you know, and saw that 
Lula was in jail and then Bolsonaro came to power and now Bolsonaro is threatening so many of these institutions that Brazil has spent such a long time building up. And as you so brilliantly explained, the sort of inbuilt nature of corruption there that that defines the kind of politics there, even while it seemingly is constitutional. We don't have time to go into all of that, but I'd love to hear first about how those conservative forces are viewing what Bolsonaro is doing and is it a threat to them? And then we can move to the oppositional forces. Well, I think most the business community basically support Bolsonaro's program that is basically a continuation of the neoliberal reforms that Temer enacted. That was the reason why the impeachment, the coup, happened in 2016, right? But they would rather to have this neoliberal agenda under the democracy. But, I mean, the the business community, apart from very radical ranchers and loggers, for instance, and there was a conflict between the big capital and the financial capital, it's conflict with, between the financial capital and the fascist vanguard of Bolsonaro movement. As I mentioned, the, the truckers basically were able to block the main highways in Brazil for almost two days. Mm-hmm. So the fascist escalation was have huge economic impacts in terms of asset valuation, more than $3 billion or 2 to $3 billion flew from Brazil on September 8th, mostly from foreign investors, and the exchange rate depreciated for like almost 3%. And the roadblocks could have serious impact on the supply of gasoline and food. That are the items that are already driving upwards the Brazilian now two-digit inflation in the last 12 months. So Bolsonaro had to back down because he couldn't actually enact a coup but his fascist vanguard believed that a coup was going on. And as it wasn't going on, Bolsonaro had to ask this vanguard to back down. And he called Temer himself, Dilma Rousseff, vice president, who, who was the leader of the coup against her. And Temer basically had long-lasting ties with Alexandre Moraes, and he mediated a friendly call from Bolsonaro to Alexandre Moraes on September 9th. And Alexandre Moraes then, on September 10th, convened with the Minister of Justice. And as Bolsonaro had to back down, most people think that Bolsonaro actually had to retreat, in, and it was a humiliating retreat. But we are not sure. We, we cannot say actually that, because... Uh, Of course, this atonement letter was the public manifestation of a compromise, right? But we don't know what the Supreme Court will do. Bolsonaro could have gained some concession. We don't know. There are possible hypotheses, some hypotheses on what he could have gained. But are you Uh, saying, just to go back one step, because you talked about what the truckers were able to do and to essentially you know, sort of stop the economy and assets flew out of the country. Does the agricultural sector really support Bolsonaro? Or <laughs> It depends pretty much, Susie, I think maybe on the how big is the outfit and how dependent it is from China and international market. 
Okay. Because, I mean, big capital in Brazil is pretty much afraid on the possible boycott on Brazilian exports because of a coup or maybe especially because of the Amazon deforestation. And so they would rather have Bolsonaro moderate this deforestation policy that he supports. But the middle to small capital that is very extractive and sometimes use slave-like uh, labor, uh, pretty much for Bolsonaro. And people say, the uh, newspapers today say that big capital from the, the agricultural sector called Bolsonaro to tell him that he had to make the, the truckers to back down. So there is this big conflict between financial and big capital, industrial or rural capital, agrarian capital, and the small basis of middle class, high middle class, and the petite bourgeoisie, and of course, the Christian evangelicals and the military police. It's very difficult to kind of get a handle on because you mentioned the deforestation policy. And of course, that plays into the hands of the agrarian sector, right, that wants to develop all of that land. But climate crisis is affecting Brazil just like everywhere else. And so I'm just wondering, given the combination of the pandemic disaster in Brazil and his and Bolsonaro's handling of it, plus his attempts to have a coup, his undermining of institutions, and then the discovery that his own family is corrupt. Uh, given all of these things, plus climate, where's the opposition and what are they saying? And, and how secure would you say Bolsonaro is in the years to come and in the next election? Well, I think that Lula, who is the main center-left candidate, is having a lot of talks both with center politicians in Brazil and he has some room also with big capital. And maybe big capital believes that it's better to have something like a progressive new liberalism than to have a fascist regime with authoritarian new liberalism, mm. right? And some business representatives actually voiced their displeasure on the fascist escalation and the, the self-coup launch because the fascist coup would isolate Brazil, Consider that Trump could have supported Bolsonaro, but Biden administration might not even recognize a new regime. And climate change has made Bolsonaro administration paria, worldwide, given the acceleration of the deforestation of the Amazon rainforest and its centrality to any hope of limiting the planet heating to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So big capital in Brazil, both financial capital with huge international connections and, of course, big agrarian capital would rather have limited democracy, a moderate new liberalism with some social bent, rather than have a fascist dictatorship in Brazil. <laughs> So I think that the big associations that represent big private banks, big agribusiness and industrial capital have voiced their discontent with manifestos. They published manifestos the week before the September 70 demonstration. That's unprecedented because they clearly were signaling to the military that they, they would rather not have a military coup in Brazil, I believe. 
So given all of that and that we're really running out of time, Pedro Paolo, I'd like to ask you then, you know, what the PT strategy is. Lula, apparently now everyone assumes that he's going to run and that he's going to win. But that election isn't until 2022, right? Yes. And so yeah. I'm, and then you also write in your article that part of the left is supporting a front with liberal parties for an impeachment process to kind of hurry this up. And of course, you know, time is of the essence. So let's hear from yeah. you on both of those issues. Yes. Well, I think, Susie, that after Bolsonaro's alliance with Centrão, I mean, the, the other center-right parties that Bolsonaro used to criticize as the establishment that he falsely claimed that he would demolish, this alliance diminished, reduced a lot the likelihood of impeachment process. And on the other hand, the beginning of impeachment process would be used by Bolsonaro, by Bolsonarismo, as a narrative, as a pretext for a counter coup against an democratic coup. And maybe this would give the military a pretext to intervene. And I think that's one reason why most of the PTU still seems to prefer to wait for the 2022 election instead of agitation for impeachment process. The other reason is that a runoff with Bolsonaro is almost surely elect Lula. But of course, the, the risk is that the election would not actually be recognized by the, the result of the election would not be recognized by Bolsonaro. On the other hand, the so-called third way, the liberal, neoliberal center-right parties, they are ambivalent about the impeachment process also. Even though the liberal, neoliberal presidential hopefuls would rather get Bolsonaro impeached because, they, of course, they, it would increase their chance of being elected president, but they lack party cohesion, basically because many representatives of these parties fear losing the election to left alternative for representatives if they are shunned by the right after impeaching Bolsonaro. But if Bolsonaro loses popularity, impeachment process might happen. At mm. least if the vice president, who is a retired general that is loathed by Centrão and all the political class, it's Hamilton Mourão, betrays Bolsonaro and mend his ways with Centrão. So we are in the middle of a very unstable and uncertain process here. And I think uh, of course, the, the left has to regain the streets. It didn't call for a massive street demonstration because of the pandemic, but it's, of course, time to do it. Pedro Paolo, thank you so much. It sounds very much like what is going on elsewhere, like in the United States, too, including the use of impeachment and in California recall, which we hope will not be successful. I don't think it will be. But I want to check back with you because I'm speaking to Pedro Paolo while this is going on, literally just a few days in motion. And so we don't know where this is going to go yet. But as always, Brazil has captivated our interest. And I want to thank you so much. Is this article that you've written going to be published anywhere that listeners can find online or shall it? Yeah, Susie, I'm giving the finishing touches and I'm going to send you publication soon. Great. Okay. So we will link to it. And I want to thank you again, Pedro Paolo, for talking to us from Campinas in Brazil and giving us the lowdown on, my God, the crazy, bizarre politics that are more normal now than they were before. Thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thank you for having me, Susie. 